I'm Kim. I'm Megs. Welcome to the At Woods End podcast. <laughs> We're recording. <laughs> you better be following us on Instagram. <laughs> Why are we here? What have I done? Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? I'm really into that right now. If I don't wake up <laughs> with jet lag, am I really living? Honestly, cheers to us. I don't know, is that even a word? Welcome back to the Atwoods End podcast. I'm Kim. And I'm Megs, and this is episode 48. I'll take a large popcorn, which is actually my order at the movies, plus a candy and a pop. (laughs) (laughs) I usually order like a small popcorn and a Diet Coke, but my stipulation (laughs) on the popcorn is that I have to have both dill and white cheddar seasoning, and then I mix them. And I understand that that is like a probably disgusting amount of seasoning, but it's so good, and it's like the only way I ever want to eat movie theater popcorn. Okay, I wanted to call Um, this episode, I'll take ketchup and dill for my popcorn. (laughs) But then I was like, I don't know if people are going to be like, oh, that's disgusting. But I like ketchup and dill. That's my favorite combination of seasoning. (laughs) Yeah, mine's dill and white cheddar. And like, I literally will pour both of the entire packets (laughs) onto my small popcorn. Oh, no. Delicious. (laughs) And then I like, after I'm like leaving, I'm reflecting on like how much powder I probably (laughs) ate. How much sodium. Yeah. Yeah. But, anyways. Okay, so today we're going to the movies. We're not talking about films, though, but rather, as per one of our previous movie nights when Maggie was screaming, what the hell does a producer even do? (laughs) We're going to look at the different roles involved in the making of a movie and like what they actually entail. I feel like people know famous directors, actors, and even maybe writers, but watching any movie, the credits can literally go on for 15 minutes in some cases. And I still don't actually know what so many of these people do. And more importantly, why or like what the role is and why it's important. Yeah. And like, I want to say that this is pretty in line with one of our brand pillars, which is Googling random things. (laughs) Therefore, we're now experts on this topic. We are. So let's get into it. Speaking of lines, here's something that I didn't know. Basically, in film production, there's something called the line. And it's like a common practice in production budgeting in which a literal line is used to like visually divide film crew positions Mm. that are paid either according to like pre-negotiated fixed rates. So those are like the above the line crew. And then film crew positions that are paid either on like an hourly or a daily rate and those are considered below the line crews. Yeah, and this kind of represents the first major division within film crew hierarchy. But also I'm I'm going to just be referring to myself as above the line from now on because I like the sound of that. It's just very badass. Like mm, I'm above the line. <laughs> Me too, which is funny because like you and I are built on careers that are very much below the line crew members. <laughs> but I agree, we'll be we'll be above the line moving forward. So let's start with the actual members that are above the line. Can you answer your own question now? What does a producer do? <laughs> yes, I can. They are the overall decision makers. So producers are responsible for securing funding, setting a project into motion, and providing high-level organizational guidelines. They basically come up with story ideas and hire writers or choose and secure rights to scripts. So this is known as optioning a script. If you've ever heard of a script being optioned, this is what it's in reference to. Then they decide on the scale and the budget of the film and then source the financing from investors, studios, 
and distributors. And so for this reason, unsurprisingly, you find them at the very top of any film production kind of chart or like in the credits above even the directors and below only the studios or the financers of that project. And it is common for producers to hire crew members that they've already worked with over time and they may even curate their own kind of film crew lists and you have these same teams working on different films together. Okay, yes, this all makes sense and I think this is one of the most confusing ones because there's actually 450 million <laughs> hits on Google's for the search of what do movie producers do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's it's one of those they're there because I think what's confusing sometimes is you'll have like actors or like people that we know as lead actors being producers. And that's what's always kind of thrown me off. But since we've already mentioned it, let's get into directors. Kim, take it away. So if producers handle all the logistics, directors manage the creative aspects of the production. So they direct the making of the film by visualizing the script and like guiding the actors and the technical crew to capture that vision for the screen. They control the film's dramatic and artistic aspects. So they have like obviously a huge influence over all of the film crew positions and also kind of like the final look and feel of a film. Yeah, and it's interesting because this it's like a film theory and I took a course on it when we were in university called auteur theory, and which is like author in French. And it's basically this theory of the fact that like you can tell a director's body of work just by like certain details and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And so it's like it could be something as simple as they always work with like the same actor right. or Wes Anderson obviously is like a really big example of that always works with Bill Murray everything's <laughs> symmetrical yeah. and like they lots of titles on the screen like ways that you can tell that oh this is a Wes Anderson movie this is a Steven Spielberg movie like you know well yeah when, so there's lots of explosions it's a Michael Bay movie exactly like. yeah so I literally the first two directors that came to mind were Wes Anderson and then Quentin Tarantino because he's also notorious for excessive gore gore like, to and a comedic level yeah and working with like Uma Thurman a lot and you know and uh, Samuel L. Jackson yes yeah exactly right and I also like it that in my mind really solidifies like the creative influence clearly if you guys want to see a really good example of directors in action or like how directors follow that auteur theory, mm-hmm. there's an episode of Family Guy called Three Directors. <laughs> it is hilarious. And basically they ask Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson and Michael Bay, in quotes, <laughs> to do the same story, which is Peter Gets Fired. And it is oh absolutely, it's brilliant. It's so well done and it's so funny. And I highly recommend that episode because that's kind of like my understanding of a director was, was solidified when, yeah. <laughs> when watching that. For that class, I wrote my paper on Boz Lerman, who did like the DiCaprio, Romeo and Juliet. He did Moulin Rouge. He did the Great Gatsby. Um, he did the new Elvis movie. Um, and like he's like so glitzy, glammy, glitzy, flashy, yeah. like very it like most of his movies. It's also very obvious that he did them just because of like good music, like really curated soundtracks yeah. to a lot of them. Yeah. Anyways, apparently, I think it's so it's so interesting to me. Yeah. Apparently, going back to Quentin Tarantino, apparently for all his movies, if the, the if a song's not like specifically created for the movie, he goes into his own record collections 
to pull music apparently this is That's what i've really heard cool. i if I, quentin if you're listening i'd love you to either agree or disagree confirm or deny <laughs> my dream job would be like think like as a backup career to like curate the soundtracks for me yeah do you remember we did an episode actually it's like if you could do anything outside of freelancing actually in this episode we're gonna go through a lot of things like as i was reading all the different roles i'm like i would love this i want to do this in another life in another time but hold on i just have a question because we touched on producers already Uh, when i was talking to my sister about this episode she was like oh it's a good episode idea because you know what what does an executive producer even do so that's my next question just like circling back if they are the same thing or executive producers is kind of like this fancy catch-all term that represents like authority and respect without necessarily like denoting that they have any specific film crew job or task so like often they fulfilled some like highly specific role but the exact nature of their responsibilities can be like dramatically different from one executive producer to another so like some may have had a direct hand in financing a film while others may have been awarded the title like as incentive for some other contribution like scripting or being an advisor so it's like kind of like a gold star sticker which makes <laughs> me laugh and also it like explains a lot because it's a question that i've wondered like what i thought an executive producer was just kind of like a producer but more like i thought it was just kind of a higher level producer which isn't true it's just that they they kind of are getting almost like an honorary credit as part of their involvement but because of something specific they did right yeah and like i don't i don't know if you've ever watched succession or if anyone listening has well i'm sure somebody listening has watched succession it's like an hbo show kind of similar to suits but like very like dramatic like business vibes like it's this media family and they're all just like awful people to each other and (laughs) will will ferrell is an executive producer on it and every time i see the credits i'm like why like it's so not will ferrell's wheelhouse in terms of the type of content he normally creates is there any comedic relief in it or is it just like serious business yes but like i wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's ever like it's kind of like one of those like sar- like dark humor, sarcastic humor. So maybe, maybe. that's why he's so an maybe, executive producer. but it's just like so not when you think of like Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, and then you watch yeah. Succession and you're like, <laughs> what is Will Ferrell's role in this? But maybe he helped fund it. I don't know. But anyways, that's that's what I think of when I think of executive. You know what? Producers. Actually, I was I was reading like a like a blog somewhere, and and one of the questions was you know what actor just like grinds your gears what actor can you not stand and so many people said will ferrell even my mom's not a big fan like i think one of my favorite will ferrell movies is blades of glory which oh yeah that's a good one yeah which is about like figure skating but it's just Mm -hmm. it's absolutely hilarious but speaking of on-screen talent as will ferrell i think he's funny i think he's, he's i think he's funny there's something about him that like vaguely makes me feel like he would creep me out in real life and i don't know why because like, i like all his movies <laughs> yeah but there's something about the thought of like having a one-on-one conversation with him that kind of makes me feel i don't know like i just feel like he might be strange but i don't know See, why i, I don't get that, that at all you think of, i feel like if i sat like, next to him on a plane i think he would be just like serious like i think he'd be like kind of i don't think he's as silly as he can portray like i think no that's my well, vibe have you ever watched there's a netflix series called comedians in cars getting coffee and it's jerry seinfeld and basically he rents like a nice car like a different car every episode and picks up a comedian 
at their house and then they drive and they get a coffee together at some like local cafe and they just have a conversation and the Will Ferrell's in one of the episodes and he seems like a lovely lovely person <laughs> just like oh okay hold on yeah I just anyways this, this may be an unpopular opinion but I can't stand Jerry Seinfeld so here's here's the okay I've watched Seinfeld last year I started like season one episode one I watched it all the way through and then I think of you because I I can't stand Seinfeld. Okay, so when I was like maybe like the last season or the second last season, I saw this interview. Like I just started to learn a little bit more about him because obviously all my technology was listening to me, and so I just started seeing like more about him. And I saw this video, and somebody's giving him an interview, and this is like probably 2011 or 2012. And so that that's really important to keep in mind because of the next person in this story. It's like they're at the height of their popularity where Jerry Seinfeld was sorry, no longer very popular. So he's giving an interview and all of a sudden Kesha runs up to him and she's like, oh, my God, Jerry Seinfeld, like, oh, like, okay, can I give you a hug? Like, I'm so excited to see you. Like, I'm a really big fan. Like, she's like totally fangirling. And he goes, uh, no. And she was like, oh, okay. And then she had like ran off. And then the person who's giving the interview, they're like, that was Kesha. And he goes, okay, who's that? And then he goes like the TikTok, like the singer. And yeah. and Jerry Seinfeld was like, Ugh. and I was like, you're not funny. You married a child. <laughs> How dare you? And I was like, wow, what an unattractive, you know, like all stars are probably like that. Like, it must be a lot and people must do that to you a lot. And, you know, like how Justin Bieber just stopped taking or giving autographs because it was like overwhelming. Too like, much, yeah. I get that. But Jerry Seinfeld, you know, 15 years after his popularity or 10 years after his popularity to snub someone like that, who you can't tell me you didn't know who that was. And maybe that was the, the point is that if you create outrage, you create publicity. But yeah, that was... I did not like that, so I'm not a big fan of him. But okay, I'm totally getting off topic here. That's a huge tangent. I wanted to move on to on-screen talent. So they are not technically considered part of the film crew per se, but they are super important in like the hierarchy of a film. So when we talk about people who are actually being filmed, because you have lots of people who do like stand-ins. So when they're planning a scene, you'll have people that look similar to the lead actors or actresses that just stand there to be like okay yeah this is how we want to do the shot as they like prepare they don't just wing it but you have in a regular movie set you have your lead actors or actresses that have like the prominent roles you have your supporting actors who have less than the lead but more than what's called the principal cast who includes anyone who has a speaking role and then finally you have like background actors and actresses who won't have any speaking roles does that make sense yeah that makes sense and then are they all included as part of the principal cast see like from my understanding you have the big names then you have the principal cast then everyone else who isn't actually speaking but the rabbit hole on this was like pretty deep and you know maybe somebody famous can straighten this out for us because i'm just having all yeah. these calls yeah funny like if any like mega actor or actress wants to like come on the podcast and just like educate us yeah be greatly appreciated because googling only goes so far right we need real life experience exactly so okay we have one more above the line role 
the casting director. Right. So this one surprises me because I feel like they would do all of their work before the film actually goes into production. Yeah. But anyways, it's an easy enough one to explain at least. The casting director is like the person in charge of finding the right performers for a project. Yeah, and I feel like this one I've been able to determine all on my own some <laughs> using your keen deduction skills <laughs> you know what i am so good at murder mysteries Tila got mad at me because i used another audible credit to buy another agatha christie hercule poirot <laughs> mystery <laughs> but this one i've actually so the last one that i read which is really good if anyone's looking for a good murder mystery cat among pigeons is an excellent excellent read and i was able to figure out like a quarter of it before they revealed it which i usually don't i find that agatha christie's mysteries are a lot harder than like sherlock holmes Mm -hmm. and like sir arthur conan doyle because that one he just like presents you with everything and you can literally be the detective like a children's you know like sing along movie right but like figure out the mystery whereas her books are just so different but yeah so i uh i do have fantastic deduction skills thank you thank you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but okay, so moving on to boots on the ground, as they call it, because like when I was reading through different roles, there was a really big emphasis that that above the line and below the line, it's not really substantial. Like it doesn't indicate that the people above the line do work any harder than the people below the line. It's almost like they rely so heavily, like the above the line people cannot do what they're doing without everybody else. And it just has to do with like accounting and like financing. But okay, right. so this well, is Well the- maybe it has to do with the fact that like certain roles are either like you're paying them their one off fee, like a producer or something like mm-hmm. that. Versus like like or a director, you're like giving you're offering them a certain amount of money to like do the project versus like say like someone who's just like su- like helping with sound, like being the I don't know what the technical term is, but like this person oh actually an example, an intimacy coordinator is, yes. like, a person that goes on a, a movie set to, like, basically, like, make sure that when people are filming, like, intimate scenes, sex scenes, things like that, they'll, like, make sure that both actors feel comfortable and that, like, no one's being made is violated or, like, you know, just make sure that everything kind of, like, goes smoothly and help to, like, choreograph that scene, essentially. Yeah. And you wouldn't need that person every day, so it would make more sense to pay them on a daily rate. Exactly. the days that you need them, and that's why they would be below the line crew, but it doesn't mean they're, like, less. It's more about the frequency with which you need them. And actually, speaking of, like, intimacy scenes, I find that I'm becoming... I don't know if it's, like, more of a prude or more of, like, a... I don't love TV shows or movies that have, like, really prominent or really graphic sex scenes. And I found for a while there was, like, a movement away from that, and now it's almost back and it's worse than ever, where I just, I don't, I think you can tell a story without it. Like, sure, maybe sometimes it's, like, I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm like, oh, yuck. I'm gonna close my eyes for this. I don't need to watch this. This is gross. (laughs) Okay. We haven't we haven't touched upon assistant directors yet, and I feel like they're included in this below the line crew section. Tell me. Okay, I'm gonna do a lightning round on this because they are so they're not considered above the line. Basically, it's broken down into three categories. So you have the first assistant director who's responsible for crafting the shooting schedule, running the set, making sure all other film crew productions and positions are functioning on time, and then dealing with thousands of little daily problems that arise on even the smoothest of productions. 
Then you have something called the second assistant director, who is the first assistant director's right hand. And in their most basic form, they're responsible for handling daily call sheets and shepherding talent to and from the set. Then, fun fact, did anybody know that there's a second second assistant director? <laughs> <laughs> who helps ease just like the whole assistant directing department's workload when a shoot scale or degree of difficulty becomes like really large. Like I'm thinking of like these like Marvel movies where you'll have several mm -hmm. of them working on a blockbuster with really like specifically when you have large crowds of background performers and a film crew the size of a small army. Right. Okay. I didn't know this like at all <laughs> um, so, okay i'm gonna do my own lightning round as we move into the art department the art department oversees like the physical creation of all the visual elements in like a film or tv series so unless it's cgi if you can see an object on screen it was probably handled by one or more members of the art department and actually i know and like there when i was in the uk one year they have like they've transformed the harry potter sets into it's basically like a museum now like a studio tour. right 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 so you can walk through and you can see all of the sets and all of the props and like everything's still set up and like the amount of detail that goes into every single piece that was like created is yeah. like wild like the amount of time it would have taken to produce even something like a little teapot that was like sitting on the shelf and like is so crazy and like little I think what's like really cool about like set design and stuff like that is like even you know in the first Harry Potter movie when he gets his wand and he's in like the wand shop and yeah. there's like all the like little boxes every one of those boxes has a crew cast or crew member's name on the box oh so, wow like, there's all these like little hidden things and I just think that's like so interesting how often stuff like that must happen in movies and like I, those like little like easter egg that Facts they they all so... know and that's special to them and then when they watch yeah. the movies they're like oh my wand is the fourth from the right yeah yeah it's just, i think that's so fun but anyways the production designer is like the head of the art department they work with the director and the director of photography who we'll get to in a second to craft like the overall look for a film then there's the set dresser who's in charge of arranging the shooting set so like putting furniture in place decorations other graphic elements and then there's the prop master who sources and organize all the like non-weapon props that are used in a project, which I think would be such a fun job. I would love to be a prop master. See, I would love to be a set dresser. I feel like that's like a way of, because like with interior design, for example, like no one's like, mm, I'm feeling like 1856 for my living room. Like you're with trends and like you can bring back little vintage things, but it'd be so fun to like do the research of, you know, what something would look like at this time and pull the right things to keep it consistent. Because like, for example, coming back to one of my favorite old shows, which has new seasons, so I'm not that behind is Murdoch Mysteries, like the Canadian detective police show. And some of their attention to detail on their sets and with their props is just like so well done that I'm like, yes, that is consistent with like, you know, early 20th and, and 19th or like late 19th, early 20th century. So that's, mm -hmm. yeah, very cool. But OK, in moving on to the camera department, I think the most important one, which you've just mentioned, is the director of photography. And they're responsible for recording the images of a film 
in accordance with a director's vision. So that means they're in charge of, get this, okay, creating light, bending light, and capturing light in a way that achieves an agreed upon look. And so technically the director of photography is the head of the camera department, but they also guide the creative decisions made by the electrical and the grip departments, which two new words for me that I just never thought of (laughs) in movies. Right. Okay. So like the electric and the grip departments, which again, I'd also never really thought too heavily of before. The electric department creates light. So collaborating with the grip department to execute the director of photography's lighting plan. So if the electric department creates light, the grip department takes it away. So they use like flags, silks, reflectors, and like just like a five ton trucks worth of other equipment (laughs) to like manipulate existingly to help the director of photography achieve a desired look whether that's like moody you know you have like the old like i think of like the 1920s 1930s like film noir detective where it's like this really harsh high contrast like shadows versus something that's like really like light and bright and airy um do you want to know a fun fact about black and white films that I just what? learned because of the Adams family. I haven't watched Wednesday yet. Have you watched Wednesday yet? No. I ha- I'm waiting for Halloween. I feel like I'm like, who the hell's watching this in December? <laughs> like, you guys are whack. <laughs> but no, I'm going to watch it on Halloween. But I was reading about the original Adams family, and most of their set was actually shades of pink because pink shows up significantly better than other shades, like including white, does in a black and white film, which I didn't know. But also, speaking of all this lighting, as a lover of light and moods and settings of the tones, I feel like I'm going to appreciate this so much more in movies because I never once have thought about the light in something. I'm like, why don't in, they just um, shoot during the day? But it makes sense. In the remake of Little Women that came out in 2019, it jumps between two time periods. Like, it jumps between, like, the girls growing up and then present day. Mm-hmm. And they're both time periods are shot in different lighting to help you, like, differentiate oh. between the two. So, like, the current day one has this kind of, like, almost, like, moody kind of green tint to it. Okay. And the, the ones when they're a kid are more, like, golden and, like, light. Oh, I love that. I actually haven't... It's interesting. Yeah, I haven't watched the new one. Honestly, Little Women makes me bawl my eyes out and I have to like emotionally prepare myself when I read the book. Like I have an early edition of like Louisa May Alcott, which has like the rest of her books, which you haven't... If you haven't read anything other than Little Women, I'd recommend literally any of her other books because they're all excellent yeah no it just i i can't that and great gatsby the unfairness of great gatsby just makes me ball so like i have a really hard time so i haven't watched it yet it is eventually on the list when i'm i saw it so many times in theaters also geraldine i don't know if you know who the author geraldine brooks is but she wrote a book called march that's written from the dad's it not like it's it's written from the dad's perspective oh that's okay yeah which is interesting that's that's really cool okay so moving on next we have hair and makeup which i want to say we all have a good idea about but i did want to mention the role of a shopper and that's somebody who in production finds perfect items like so a lot of things are made but i guess in some cases they shop for them apparently before everyone is like i want to be a shopper on a movie set it's a it's a super stressful job because they have to balance like time and money 
and like they, it's usually a limited amount of time and a li- limited amount of money and but like still i don't know i feel like shopping spending the production's money love <laughs> yeah honestly if i ever leave freelancing i'm liking the sound of a lot of these roles <laughs> And and speaking of sound, <laughs> oh my god, what a transition! So the sound department is responsible for getting the best on-set sound possible, and to do this, they use a wide range of analog techniques and technical innovations to be able to ensure that dialogue can be heard crystal clear in even the most clamorous of conditions, which is just like insane to think about. I know it always makes me laugh that in like dance scenes or anything with music that the music is added in post-production so like you'll have a group of people dancing without any music yeah like i just every time you see you know like a club scene or something in a movie i just think about the fact that they had to do that in silence well like think of like mamma mia any of the mamma mias they have huge dance numbers with like so many people that that's just yeah 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 i love i love me Mamma mia. Okay, so we are nearing the end of our list here. So next we have stunts, which self-explanatory. But do you know what the VFX department does? I don't think so. Okay, so while majority of the modern visual effects are ultimately realized in post-production, which means like changing things like on computers, you know, utilizing green screens, that kind of stuff. It's often necessary for film crew positions from this department to be present on the actual day of shooting. So think of it kind of like these crazy green screen scenes or like even something like an avatar where they're changing an entire person. These guys are giving guidance and suggesting, you know, digital digital solutions of like how to do things and what to do and and how to act when you know you're going to become something else or have some sort of crazy effect added on to you. Right. I can't even imagine how wild that is for people who are like on board with all these sensors and then the director is like you're a dragon and you just have to like <laughs> make make sense of that. I, I feel like there would be a ride. <laughs> Yeah. Say, so have you seen the clips of, I think it's Benedict Cumberbatch, like, being the dragon from The Hobbit? Yes. And he's, like, crawling around in his, like, suit, just, like, slithering on the ground. And you're like, oh, this is, like, way less impactful when you see how it was actually done. Yeah, <laughs> because it's such a scary dragon in The Hobbit. But no, I was actually thinking of, there's an animated movie called Rango featuring Johnny Depp. And it's animated, but they actually got all the, the the actors in the film acted out. And then that's how the like animators, like that's what they worked from. And they recorded all their sound that way too, in order to have like more of an authentic vibe that's almost cool. or feeling. Yeah. So I highly recommend it's about a it's about a chameleon named Rango who ends up in the wild, wild west and he was like a house pet. But then he's like in in the deep of the Wild West country and <laughs> and it's Johnny Depp and it's really funny. But OK, last but not least, we have post-production. So obviously after production, when the filming is wrapped and then the editing or like the editing of the visual and audio materials begin. And so it refers to all the tasks associated with cutting raw footage, assembling that footage, adding music, dubbing and like all the sound effects which question about kissing then i wish i answered this question or i had this question when i was doing the research for it kissing makes sound 
do they add that in post? Like, do they just like mute it? Or is that a sound that can be picked up? Do you know what I mean? I feel like it, I feel like it's definitely a sound that could be picked up, but I don't know if they potentially add it in post. Cause I know there's some pretty like particular sounds that, um, sometimes pop up, it pops up on my like TikTok feed is like a day in the life of like a sound effect maker who's yeah. just like yeah. watches a clip and then is like scraping on like a bit of tin foil or something to like make it sound like rain or yeah you know things like that that I don't know if that's something that they re I would assume you would try and catch that kind of sound effect naturally but if it sounded weird I know often even in like live action movies actors will have to come back and like re-record audio if it sounds funny and then they'll like dub it in yeah no that makes sense and even like this got me thinking too of you know how we were talking about like music and like singing too they never have everyone's always like lip singing when they have like a musical number within a movie but I know Les Miserables they did they did it all live somehow and I remember that that was like a crazy Mm -hmm. feat which Mm -hmm. that I can't fully appreciate I think that's like people in the movie industry are like wow that must have been really hard like Anne Hathaway doing everything like acapella on top of that and Mm -hmm. I know that there was only one pre-recorded song and that was like the very beginning of the movie but everything else was shot live somehow so I'm I'm curious about like how they did that compared to like every other movie set if that makes sense yeah 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 me too okay well I think that that wraps up this section of the podcast (laughs) so you're (laughs) if you're like us you're going to be really annoying anytime you watch a movie with your family next um (laughs) I already know I will be yeah I know too (laughs) okay so that does conclude this section so on to the philomath this is completely unrelated to movies, so I'm just going to preface with this is just a little fun fact to end today's podcast episode. But I was at the ROM, and there is the Wildlife Photographer of the Year show on right now, yes. um, which is, like, such a good, like, exhibit to go to every year if you're ever looking for something fun to Hold do. Hold on. Before in- you continue this, I just want to say, too, the only issue, it's an amazing exhibit, and it's an amazing idea. Nat Geo hosts it. And at one point, you would go to the UK and stay at, like, a lunch at the at Buckingham Palace. Like, it's a really big deal. But my issue with it is that they have a children's category. And if you look at the cameras that the children use, they are, like, insane, insane, mm-hmm. like, cameras, right? And so the last time we went to see it, we were thinking, we're like, is this actually children who are doing it? Or is it? their parents who afford you know you're not going to give your child a mark three camera who's like nine years old like I'm just curious about the integrity of that category and whether or not like how that works is it just kids with the cameras you know I feel like yeah I I do kind of agree with you that I think that the like integrity in terms of like I I believe that the kids are actually shooting it, but it does it does question maybe a certain degree of privilege to be able to do own that, yeah. Cameras and to be I mean, obviously some some people are just like it's like this was shot in their backyard, but yeah, they do have really like amazing camera equipment. It could be that their their parents are photographers and have like lent like you know have taught their kids how to use cameras and like allow them to like experiment and that's why. But again, like 
you're as a kid I think there's a certain amount of potentially like advantage in terms of just like having access to that equipment that is a bit different but I do think that the kids actually do take those photos it's just like the circumstances with with which they've become yes yeah that's my only my only bone to pick with with that aspect of that really young children's category because I'm like "Mm, have you hung out with a nine-year-old under seven category or something like that and the photos are incredible yeah but yeah anyways it's a really good show the pictures are just like they're funny and they're like interesting and yeah they're always really really good but I saw this picture at like in one of the sections that was of a daisy I think somewhere in like I want to say it was like in Australia or something like that but I was reading the description and I didn't know this before and I just thought it was like a it fit really well with our love of like etymology yes okay tell me so the word daisy comes from the old English meaning day's eye and in welsh it the word the way it's like worded means the eye of the day so it's because the flowers open at dawn and their heads will track the sun's progress across the sky and then at dusk they slowly shut each eye by turning their white petals inwards to make a cup shape and daisies will only open in full sun staying firmly closed in wet weather and so this is the origin of the saying fresh as a daisy meaning someone who has slept well in a spray and ready to face the morning oh i love that and i just thought that was cute and i didn't know that they like tracked the sun like that and then like i like i understand that like a lot of flowers will like kind of open and shut you know in the daytime and stuff but i liked that they like watched the sun yeah, so I know it's not true for all asters, which is like where the daisies come from. Like sunflowers, for example, they do not track. They just like right. open, they, they'll wilt almost and then they come up. But daisies must be an exception to that where they like open and close. But here's another, speaking of en- etymology. So that daisies, sunflowers, they all belong to this family of asters or, or commonly known as asteraceae. And that means stars like the stars of the day yeah so different like latin derivative of that but yeah everybody go see the wildlife photographer of the year actually we met somebody so a lot of these so there's it's very strict this competition because one time tilo and i were at the toronto zoo and we were shooting like tilo has a good camera and he likes to shoot wildlife too and we bumped into this guy who has entered multiple times he's never won like the top top prize because there is like one top prize yeah there's like one winner that wins like the photo of the year and they win a lot Um, of money and they win all these like privileges and i think they actually get to shoot with nat geo for for the year or something and you know there's a possibility that they stay with nat geo but this guy was telling us about how insane you have to have like all the information like to verify that it's actually yours and stuff. They're very, very strict on that, which makes sense, right? That you're not just mm-hmm. nabbing somebody's photos. And apparently they'll just like call you randomly and they need you to provide very specific details in that moment. And if you can't do that, then you get disqualified or something along those lines that they're very strict about how it's done and, and how they... That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, guess it's a good thing that they, they do it that way. And, like, you read the little, like, descriptions by each photo and it's, like, um, like, there was one photo that I think was of, like, I feel like it was a seal and then there was, like, all these jellyfish around and you read the description and it was, like, the photographer suffered an hour of continuously stung lips by these jellyfish oh my God. <laughs> to get this perfect photo or it's, like, um, such and such was sitting in the trench covered in leeches for three days Ew. in order to, like... 
That's disgusting. And you're like, oh my god. And like to get this perfect photo of a field mouse like carrying a berry back to its nest. Yeah. And you're like, what a sacrifice. But But like the photos are amazing. Think about people who go into like intense hair and makeup. Then that's for think about Jim Carrey doing. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. (laughs) He suffered trauma. No, he actually had to have an FBI torture consultant come in and help him through that. I was watching an interview about it around Christmas time. And basically the guy said, you know, you have to change positions often. You can smoke. You have to, you know, do these different things. Right. And so Jim Carrey, because the suit was made out of yak fur and he was smoking like a lot during this makeup process because it was like an insane amount of hours except he had to do it through like i just think of like the audrey hepburn like the cigarette holder or like cruella Deville, <laughs> right he's like it's for the cat it's for the cat <laughs> <You know? laughs> i really wish there was like behind the scenes photo of the grinch just like chain smoking, smoking away in yeah makeup, in a makeup <laughs> i guess because it's a kids movie you can't release those kinds of photos and you're like yeah oh, he but, is like, bad poor guy he like yeah he he suffered for that for that role but it's been such a like it's such a strange movie you know it's such a departure from like the dr seuss grinch but it is i think its own standalone movie i really like it like it's ridiculous yeah Yeah. so the have you seen the benedict cumberbatch version no also good speaking you you go from being a dragon to being the grinch but it's it's an excellent portrayal of that yeah yeah Anyways, this does wrap up this episode. In two weeks' time, we're going to be doing an episode on our Instagram eras. And so keep an eye on our Instagram. Yes, and if you're not already following us, you can find that at Atwits and Podcast. And if you're listening on Spotify, please make sure to follow. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and we will love you forever. And until next time, bye. Bye.